It is an honor and a privilege to be back with you tonight. I have taken fond memories with me of you, or fond memories with you of me. No, it hadn't been like that. And uh, for all this time that we have uh, been apart, where I have been in various and sundry places, as you are aware, from here I go to Indiana, where I have ministry uh, next week. And then uh, thereafter, <clears throat> I will be uh, home for about a eight days or so, and then I go to Southeast Asia. I'll be in Myanmar. How many know what the country of Myanmar is? That is Burma. Heard of that? Southeast Asia, and then I stop in Thailand for mm, five days or so, and then come on home and so forth and so on. So, But I want to tell you a short story before I share the word tonight, and that is about a year ago this time, um, my budget was, was screaming at me, and I couldn't sleep at night because it wouldn't be quiet. And so the, the folks that handle our finance, my finances in Atlanta through our ministry, they were aware, didn't tell any of my other colleagues, and we started to pray. And we said, Lord, you need to do something here. You need to, you need to, to, um, to provide. And your church, without communicating with me, because after all, your pastor is Gerald Sanders, and he doesn't communicate ever with me. Uh, that's just the way he is. And... Uh, but I'll tell you what, all of a sudden, I think either he sent me a message or I saw it in Atlanta's printout that they gave me, that this church had made a contribution into my work. I went to praising God. Brenda thought I'd fallen off a cliff or something because I was rejoicing in the Lord and said, Lord, you have heard my prayer. You do answer prayer because you did not know. I had not communicated with you what the situation was. At that time, I had not communicated with anyone except the folks in Atlanta knew and the Lord knew. And we went to prayer, and you folks stepped up to the plate and gave me a real boost and a real encouragement. And I want you to know that when you empower me in ministry, not only do you help me be here and wherever else and whatever else I do, but literally we will take this ministry and this message of preaching, teaching, and training around the world. When I'm in Myanmar, for example, I'll be teaching in one theological seminary where the principal clears the calendar for a week and says, have at it, Stan, you got my whole student body. What an honor that is. Uh, the faculty like it because they just get a goof off for a week, but uh, I go there and give them my best shot. Well, that's a tremendous opportunity, and some local pastors as well will come in and sit in on the lectures, and so you're sowing into those folks' lives. They'll be preaching in churches. There's another young man that I have been a part of, of his life. He was one of my students in India. Now he's ministering in his home country of Myanmar, and he's developing his own ministry, so I'm kind of involved in that fancy word we use is mentoring. That makes me feel like somebody wants to hear what I have to say, but he doesn't pay much attention. Once again, sort of like your pastor. And I've been trying to mentor him for 40 years. Or maybe it's the other way around, actually. In fact, allow me to, to go on to this rabbit trail for a minute. You've heard this before in years past, but there is no pastor anywhere in the country, anywhere around the world, who has been more helpful and more supportive and opening doors than that man right over there. And I am deeply indebted and humbled and grateful to he and to Elizabeth for the part that they play in my life and ministry. And I have now, uh, here in North Carolina, many avenues and many places where I go. And if you trace them all back, they go to that man right there. 
Um, for example, I'll just give you one short illustration. There was a pastor who did not know me. Jerry said, let's get in my truck and go over there. And we went over and saw this pastor who welcomed Jerry and got to know me. And now he and I are closest friends and have ministered together many times. It all goes back to him. So I'm honored and grateful to be here this evening. And there's so much more that I want to share. But as I say, the directors have directors trio. Uh, you sure we couldn't make that a quartet? <laughs> but... Uh, Anyhow, with that in mind, let's uh, go to prayer and get in the word because that was, that's what will impact our lives. Father, you are in this place. As we said this morning, oh, he's here. And you are here because you promised you would be. Because your word is the written expression of the living word. Your spirit you gave to us who hovers over this place. And so now, Lord, we just ask you to take all of that, all of us, and bring us in touch with you and make us what you want us to be. Teach us. We're here to learn and grow together in ways that only you know best. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some serious fun. God's people taking their faith seriously and having a good time doing it. And that's what we have seen so far in the book of Acts. We reminded you this morning that four times in the book of Acts, among the 47 times in the New Testament, four times the word phobos, phobia, is used in the book of Acts. And we would translate that roughly, the fear of God. Or this morning, everyone kept feeling a sense of phobos. That word was translated awe, simply that he is here. God's presence, when they realized they were connected in a supernatural and personal way, a transformative way, it changed everything about them, in them, and through them, personally and corporately. Tonight, we're going to shift gears a little bit and look at a story that lives in infamy. Think about those fancy words, in infamy. Remember who said that, 1941, December the 8th, 1941? He stood in Congress. Last night, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I had the privilege to stand in that podium in the Capitol building where FDR delivered those famous words and Winston Churchill and others have spoken. Did you know that now they have closed down that to visitors? And I'm the reason. Just saying, just saying. Well, anyway, this is a story. I, sorry, I ran on a rabbit trail there. This is a story out of scripture, Ananias and Sapphira. Ah, they indeed live in infamy. And they are simply two people in the church who dropped dead because they got out of line. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute about that this evening. What if that happened here tonight? That two of you were messing around, doing something you shouldn't be doing, and God knows about it and tells me about it, and you are pronounced dead, and we carry your bodies out and bury them over by his house. That'll probably get your attention. Did you? Listen, I remind you, I work alone. So if, there, if there's going to be any fun lines, don't steal my thunder. <laughs> All right, so we're, we're working with the idea that that would surely put the fear of God in. Just look around this room. Which two would you choose? Don't answer that. But <laughs> it does raise the point, doesn't it, that if two of us were to drop dead tonight, that would put the fear of God in every one of us, including me. Let's think for a few moments about trauma in the church. 
February 12, I'm sorry, February 2012, Virginia Beach. Bishop Barnett Thorogood suffered a heart attack in the pulpit. March 2006, Selmer, Tennessee. Young Mary Winkler shot her husband, Pastor Matthew. November 2015, Indianapolis, Indiana. Two men murder Pastor Davy Blackburn's pregnant wife, Amanda. Teddy Parker was a 42-year-old pastor, a father of two. He shot himself on November the 8th in his driveway near, his, in, near Atlanta while his 800-member church and family waited for him to arrive to preach the sermon that morning. Now, some tragedy and trauma that happens within the church is not as heinous as that, but even more scandalous. The church treasurer siphons off just a few of the funds in order to support their gambling habit. The choir director, I'm not saying anybody personally, it's in the notes, and I put it there a while back, so I'm just, just saying. The, the just generic choir director runs off with the best singer in the alto section. Or tenor section. <laughs> this is North Carolina. Some bathroom somewhere. <laughs> Sorry, it's your state. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, and, and they're making music together was the point here. That was my line. And then, then <laughs> a deacon and a secretary abscond with building fund monies and are frolicking in the surf in Cabo San Lucas. The congregation is abuzz. And then there is a personal story. And this one isn't hypothetical. When I served at Waioli Church, I served two churches over the course of my pastoral tenure, and this was on the island of Kauai, and I'm going to use her real name. I had somebody in my church that was absolutely an amazing human being in a bad way. And I'm using her real name because everything she did, she did publicly and she did it proudly. Her name was Helena Macasantos. And Helena made war on our church for the entire period of time that I was there. Well, not the entire period. I'll tell you the whole story. She, for whatever reason, decided it was her mission in life to fix her family. She had moved back to Kauai from the Big Island, where she had been for many years. She moved back, and she knew me, and she, she said, in, in fact, I'm going to fix this church, and I'm going to fix you. And she commenced. Now, she started making all kinds of trouble. She would, in every public meeting or congregational meeting we would have, it would turn into turmoil. She was a racist among the different races that live in Hawaii. And so she was causing ethnic strife and pain in the community, and they were knowing about it, and our church was, we were gracious about it. We were working through it because we are multi-ethnic. We didn't care about that kind of stuff, but she did. And then she particularly set her sights on going after me. And she would give me gas privately, one-on-one. -on -one. She was consistent. She was mean to my face. She was mean about me. She was mean in public to everybody about me on a Wednesday night. And I remember back up. I'm sitting with Brenda one night. And I said, you know, just hypothetically, I said, Brenda, if Helena were to die, 
what would I say at her funeral? You wonder, don't you ever wonder what those two talk about over there in the parsonage? They talk about you like that. <laughs> no, they do. In fact, you give me enough money and I'll tell them what they said about you and you and you. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I said, I said to Brenda, I said, if she were to die, what would I say at her funeral? Because I had buried her husband about three months earlier. She was 61 years old and in the picture of health. I'm 64, and I know I'm an amazing human being, but at, at 61, she was bouncing all over the place, causing all kinds of trouble, extremely talented. Wednesday night, I'm sitting in the front of the church because I'm playing in the worship band. They would let me in their group, you know, because I was a pastor, and I said, if I'm not in the group, you're not singing. And so um, somebody popped the door in and said, Garrett, our lead guitarist and bass player and everything else, because he was talented, said he won't be here tonight. His mama just died. What? This was one week later after I'd said that to Brenda. Understood she was down at Morishigi's store. She had gone in, got something, went out and turned her engine on her in her car, dropped her head back, and she was dead. A few days later, we had the funeral. Casket was right here. Pulpit was right here. Con church was packed because folks wanted to know what was I going to say. <laughs> and I have to confess, when I stood up there and looked down, I had to bite my tongue. Because there, everybody wanted to know what was going on there. Now, folks, I'm telling you that story just to say that trauma, crisis can happen within the family of God, not just outside. And the Bible puts that there. In Acts chapter 5, we realize that God's people are not immune to that kind of difficulty. Now, Ananias and Sapphira are apparently believers as we study the scriptures. They apparently knew Jesus in a life-changing way, but they cook up a financial and spiritual caper that they're going to foist on God and fake out the faithful. Peter sniffs it out, calls them out, and they carry out their corpses. Just like that. One question I have for you. Why is that in the Bible? I mean, think about it. If you're writing, if you're Luke and you're writing the book of Acts in order to convince people they ought to become Christians, I'm not telling them that story. Why do we get to see God's people behaving badly? The underbelly of belief. Why do we get to see the dark side of walking in the light? Now, we all know the sordid story of Ananias and Sapphira, and thank God I'm not going to take you any deeper into that muck and mire. But what I want us to consider is often where we quit reading in this passage, and that is the impact of their, their death, the impact of the discipline that came their way, and the after effects. So let's go into our Bibles, Acts chapter 5, and we'll only look at a few verses. You know how they died, and how, first how they lied and how they died. Now we pick up in verse 11, Acts 5, 11. And great fear, phobos, that's the second time that word is used, 
And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Simon's, Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. To such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick for afflicted with the unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Divine drama. Crisis in the church. Can any good come from it? Now from this passage to your and my life, I want to share with you four principles for turning turmoil into triumph. Let me say that again. It's on the screen. Turning turmoil, which is surely going to come to each of us individually at one time or another, maybe more times than another, turning the inevitable turmoil of life into triumph. Let's look at principle number one. Crisis and trauma either wakes you up or it lets you sleep. Crisis and trauma either wakes you up, gets your attention, or it lets you sleep. Illustration, Pharaoh in Egypt. For nine plagues that were tough, he just shined it on, blew it off, didn't really care. Only when that tenth plague took his personal son did it get his attention. What will it take for God to get your attention? Consider two illustrations of a guy named Saul, Old Testament, New Testament. Saul in the Old Testament. Tall, dark, and handsome. Hard head, sad end. He dismissed Samuel, despised David, disobeyed God. Saul, hard head, sad end. Think of Saul in the New Testament who would meet Jesus on the, Damascus, the road to Damascus, would become the Apostle Paul, would say later, I have run the race, I have kept the faith, I have finished the course. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of glory. Crisis and trauma either wakes you up or it lets you sleep. Secondly, crisis and trauma causes you to either pull together or to fall apart. It causes you to either pull together or to fall apart. Let's talk to people who have been married for 50 plus years. I suspect even in this room tonight there may be some of you who have been married for 50 plus years. And you're going to tell us that over the course of those many decades and seasons of life, there may have even been times when there was more true grit than true love, but here you are. And in during that time, you've been through a lot and learned a bit. It may have been health crisis. It may have been marital stress. It might have been a financial collapse. And perhaps you can tell us firsthand about the agony of a wayward child. 
But you will also tell us that there's something like that about an alloy that comes together, the tough times that forge you together, where, and, and steel, I don't understand how they do this, but I think they take iron and infuse more carbon in it somehow and make that steel even stronger than it naturally would be. Let me tell you a little story about the church that I grew up in. It's a church about the size of this in a town smaller than where you live. There's no stoplights in our town. It's an amazing thing. I remember as a kid... When the county got the bright idea, they were going to come put stop signs in our town. The old timer said, I've never stopped there before. Ain't going to start now. And they didn't. Boy, you better stay alert. You go through there. Nope, they ain't going to stop there. Never have. Well, anyhow, in our only church in town, so one church about the size of this in a little town, Reverend Jack Williams, that's his real name. I'm using a lot of real names tonight. And... Uh, Jack stayed for a long time, and he was our beloved pastor. He's the best preacher I've ever heard in my life, best teacher, and so forth. So having said that, about nine years into his tenure, they had one daughter. Her name was Debbie. She was the valedictorian of our high school class. She was two years ahead of me. And just for the record, I was not the valedictorian of my class. I, I did, however, graduate in the top 80% of my class. So... With that in mind, Debbie had an all-expense-paid scholarship to Purdue University. And she was going there. And while she was there, she started to date a young man from the wrestling team at Purdue. And they were so proud of their only daughter. And the church was excited about what she was doing and so forth. And then she became pregnant. The year was 1972. And in those days, that still caught folks' attention. And I remember as a teenager, where I always used to sit in the back like those two in the back are sitting there now, and you're waving like you're awake, but you've been back there playing tiddlywinks and all kinds of things. I warned them not to do it tonight. But um, So I'd sit in the back and fun around and goof off during church, wasn't paying much attention and so forth. But when, when Debbie was pregnant and the church was wrestling with that, I watched that group of believers about like you all. Cope with that and embrace that. And, and I later understood that Jack and Lois were devastated on a personal level and that my parents later told me that Jack had offered to resign and said, I won't put the church through this. That group of people who believed in the scriptures, who loved one another, rallied around Jack, rallied around Lois and said, you're not going anywhere. And he stayed another 15 years, a total of 24 years in that church until he retired. He had all kinds of opportunities to move on, but he stayed there because God was doing a work. And they managed that. And Debbie eventually gave birth and gave the baby up for adoption. She is now a physician practicing, Debbie is, probably getting ready to retire now, in Indianapolis. And she was married, and her husband was in the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. There was God's people taking a trauma and deciding to come together and to cope with it. Now, notice in the passage, if you've got your Bible open, please look at verse 12. And it says that when Ananias and Sapphira and this horrible thing happens in the church, notice it says the people were of one accord. Now, let's think about that biblically. In the book of Acts, that is when the church is the most powerful and potent any time in history. Before, and I'm sorry to say since. 
I don't know that I can fully understand that except notice this phrase that they were of one accord is found 11 times throughout the book of Acts. Perhaps there's a connection. Because they were so unified, God was able to use them in wonderful ways. And I give you three principles you can see on the screen. That unity is not accidental. It is intentional. Paul said to the Ephesians, he said, be diligent, chapter 4, be diligent to preserve the unity of the bond of peace. He wrote to the Romans, he said, as far as it lies within you, if possible, be at peace with all men. Unity is not accidental. It is intentional. Unity, secondly, is not preferential. It is sacrificial. He wrote again to the Romans and said, give preference to one another in love. Go the second mile, Jesus put it in these terms. In Acts chapter 15, when the early church gathered together over another crisis in the church, the Judaizing controversy. Your pastor, good biblical man, he's taught you about that. And in the Judaizing controversy, the Judaizer Christians, they lost. Their position did not prevail. But as we study in the scriptures, we do not see that they chose to go out and cause trouble in that context. There were other Judaizers causing trouble in Galatia, but not those who were there found in the book of Acts. Unity is not preferential. It is sacrificial. And unity is not optional. It is essential. In his prayer for we believers in John chapter 17 before the cross, Jesus prayed about many things, but he prayed one thing five times. Do you know what it is? That they may be one. That they may be one. That they may be one that they may be one, that they may be one. Apparently, it's pretty important. Nothing will paralyze a ministry faster than disunity. It permeates everything. It just pollutes everything. Crisis and trauma causes us to pull together or fall apart. Principle number three that we see from this story with Ananias and Sapphira, what happened afterward? What was the side effects that came from it? Crisis and trauma unleashes God's punishment or God's power. Let's slow down. Feel this. And crisis and trauma unleashes God's punishment or God's power. Ananias and Sapphira are pushing up daisies. Enough said. God's punishment is real. I cannot say that that still happens today. But I cannot say that it does not. When Helena died, just one week before I had asked Brenda that question, what would I say at her funeral? A week later, she's dead. Her son, I told you we played music together. He and I were talking after the funeral one day. and He loved Jesus, and he loved me, and I loved him. And we both were of the same suspicion that God had taken his mother home. That enough was enough. And that the name of Jesus and the reputation of his holy church would not be besmirched anymore. Her own son said that to me. See, the doctors could tell us how she died. 
but they could not tell us why. Now, the Bible does talk about discipline. You don't hear this preached very much. I'm going to take you there. In Hebrews chapters 5 and particularly chapter 12, it talks about God disciplining his children. And understand that there is in the scriptures a sin that is part of death. You find that mentioned two times. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is talking about Holy Communion, and he's saying if you don't take it with a sincere heart and you're not repentant before God, Paul says more than a few are asleep, meaning they are dead. There is an obscure passage, but it's there, and it's in plain language in that sense, in 1 John chapter 5 about a sin leading unto death. And I will be the first to say, I can never say when God has disciplined someone with death. I can say this with a clear conscience to you tonight. Do not trifle with God. It also unleashes his power. Yes, it may unleash his punishment. But God is, you know, God would much rather, I've said this for 40 years, God would much rather forgive sin than punish it. Isn't that true? What a wonderful God we have. And so when there is a crisis and a trauma, that can also unleash his power. Look in the passage. You'll notice in verse 12 and in verses 15 and 16, there was a veritable flurry of miracles. They've got the sick. They've got spirits being cast out. Peter's shadow is falling upon people. I have a question for you tonight here in Lakeview. How long has it been since a miracle happened around here? Let's just think about that for a minute. How long has it been since there's been a bona fide miracle happen in this church? I found it interesting this morning as you took prayer requests from the floor, they sounded like I hear in many churches around the world. And we prayed for, we were asked to pray for, I'm guessing around 10 folks dealing with cancer. When we did that this morning, did you ask God to heal any of them? And did you believe that he could do it? That he would do it? Think about this. When Ananias and Sapphira's situation was taken care of, suddenly there was this flurry of miracles. I can't help but say, was there an equation there? Was there a connection? Remember the story of Achan and the sin in the camp? And that, that kind of blocked the flow of God's blessing coming into his people. When the sin was eradicated, then God's blessing could begin to come. There's an interesting little passage in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus goes back to Capernaum, his hometown. And the people there say, oh, we know this guy. We know his family. We know his family, the way he works. And, and so what's the big deal? What's he talking? Who does he say he is here? And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, and he could do not many miracles there because of their unbelief. I... I'm very careful to tell you this tonight, brothers and sisters. Beware of standing in the way of someone else's miracle. If you're in open, flagrant sin, is it possible that you block the power of God from flowing into someone else's life? It seems to be the case biblically. And that's enough, at least for this old boy, 
to say, I don't want to get in the way of someone else's miracle. Crisis and trauma either unleashes God's punishment or God's power. And the fourth principle is that crisis and trauma challenges you to either get with the program or to get out. For Ananias, this dilemma, this drama, was a crystallizing moment for the people of God. And it was a watershed. And the passage is not written clearly, so we got to wrestle with it for a minute. But we can get this understanding clear. There were basically two camps of people after this whole Ananias and Sapphira. Not just their sin, but the way God dealt with it. That two people in a room like tonight die on the spot. And there were two camps of people afterwards. Those who didn't want anything to do with that group of people for good reason. Their self-preservation. And those who were saying, I won't be a part of that. Look at verse 13. It says, none of the rest dared associate with them. Verse 13, but the people, however, held them in high esteem. And verse 14, multitudes were coming and believing in the Lord. But get this, people were joining a church where you could die. Now, how do you think that would work in an advertising campaign in Burlington, North Carolina, if Lakeview Community Church put a big sign out here that says, like that flag, join or die? No, change it, scratch it out and say, join and die. Do you think that would really draw in the crowds here and that our church would begin to grow? Can you imagine if you had membership classes and you said, now, folks, we're here to talk about doctrine and so forth. And by the way, is your life insurance policy paid up? Because you're going to need it. I mean, who would want to ch join a church like that? Why did those people want to join? I'll tell you, because they saw spiritual authenticity. They said, that's the real thing. People want to be a part of something that is demanding. Hence the allure of the Marines, Army Rangers, Navy SEALs, Special Forces. We do not need to be ashamed we do not need to shy away from the demands of the gospel. Jesus did not. He never used fine print. He never soft-souled. He said, you follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Try to save your life, you're going to lose it. Lose your life for my sake, you're going to find it. Put your hand to the plow, look back, nope, can't use you. Jesus never tried to soft-sell it. And we do not need, it's time we stop apologizing by saying to people that if you come to Christ, be ready to to give him everything you've got. And we are not ashamed to talk about holiness. We are not ashamed to talk about service. We are not ashamed to talk about obedience. And yes, we will even mention that you tithe. The gospel is free. But it will cost you everything. People could see that. Some joined. Some bailed. Crisis. Challenges you to either get with the program or to get out. Crisis in the church. God's people behaving badly. Does that ever happen here? It will. Sure as we're alive, we'll struggle. Someone will stub their toe. Some will fall flat on their face. The Holy Spirit is not done. 
You sang tonight so wonderfully. God's not through with you yet. And he is still working personally and corporately. What I'm suggesting tonight is that you have hope in the gospel because we get to see in the scriptures not just what Ananias and Sapphira did. Don't focus on the gore and guts. Focus on the after effect. There were wonderful things that happened and we've discerned four principles to turn the inevitable turmoil of life into triumph. Turmoil either wakes you up or lets you sleep. Turmoil causes you to pull together or fall apart. Turmoil unleashes God's punishment or God's power. And turmoil challenges you to get with the program or to get out. Now notice in each of those four, it is your choice. Now I will say this. You do not always get to choose the turmoil. You do get to choose the triumph. And I pray that you will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is never surprised, never caught off guard, never overmatched. No matter what happens to us, or through us, or by us, no matter what we do or fail, you are still at work. You love us, and you are working your perfect purpose of redemption. May someone hear that tonight. And I want to say, as we have our closing song, if tonight you have had one of those turmoils march into your living room, a crisis, trauma. Your first instinct is to squirm or to try to get out. If it would be helpful for you tonight to face it head on and to say, Lord, I'm going to choose triumph in this turmoil. I'm going to trust you and I'm going to let you work. If we can pray with you tonight, you feel free as I ask the director's trio to come and to lead us in our closing song. You feel free to come on up and we'll, we'll spend a minute in prayer tonight as we close. If there's a turmoil in your life, you say, Lord, I want to, I want to, to make a decision and a choice that I'm going to choose triumph. You come as these folks lead us. Please.